This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, July 28, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include Apple just released updates to all its current operating systems and patches for some older systems. Make sure you've got them. A researcher warns about content caching, possibly preventing background security updates from downloading. We'll sort things out. So how big a target are the security and GPS systems in your car? Hackers may be starting to catch on, but Honda isn't helping. We've got the story. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing fine. Have you noticed what's special about today's podcast? The number, episode number, is 250. That's kind of a significant number. It's a nice round number. It's like it's a quarter of a thousand. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. This, We've done a quarter of a thousand episodes. That's quite a few episodes. Yeah. Congratulations, Josh. Yeah, it's something to pat ourselves on the back yeah. for. Good job. Okay. So naturally, after last week's episode, what happened? Apple dropped a whole bunch of new security updates, like shortly after we recorded, like probably within like an hour, I think. Yeah, yeah. Can I just suggest that in the future, we just say that they updated everything instead of us saying that they updated macOS, iOS, iPadOS, et cetera, et cetera, unless there's a specific update for one operating system, it's really gotten to that point where everything is updated at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Apple updated all the things. I, I think it's fair to say that, including they did actually release patches simultaneously for macOS Big Sur and Catalina. Of course, there's not as many patches as we've mentioned many times, Apple really only patches everything for the current version of macOS. On macOS Monterey, there were, well, there were 56 named CVE vulnerability numbers, but they added some additional, you know, credits at the bottom. So it kind of looks like it's maybe just a little over 60 total vulnerabilities that have been addressed in this update, which is pretty significant. Yeah, but you were telling me before the show that most of them are boring. Well, so th there's nothing that says it's actively exploited in the wild, that kind of thing. So in that sense, it's kind of boring a little bit. Um, it it's always a little bit more fun to hear about Apple patching something that we know people have been using in the wild, right? Uh, at least in limited targeted attacks, which is sometimes what that means. But it looks like there is an interesting one, CVE-2022-32839. <laughs> That's right. This one is listed as a remote code execution vulnerability, which is about as serious as it gets. So generally speaking, remote code execution vulnerabilities mean that a bad guy can potentially run malicious code on your device without having physical access to it. And, and that's kind of a big deal. Right. We often point out that certain vulnerabilities require physical access, which means that someone's got a either an evil maid or a Tom Cruise or someone breaks into your house. But that is a big wall to, to pass, right? Physical access. If it's remote, anyone who can get into your Mac from anywhere in the world can do bad stuff. 
And since this was one of the most interesting ones, I, I looked to see if I could find any more information about it. And Star Labs underscore SG on Twitter is the organization that's credited. Apple gives credit usually for the researcher. They didn't name the individual who worked for this company, but going to their Twitter account, they do say that this particular CVE number was found by one of their team members named Daniel. And they said, not sure why his name was missing. And then this is the really interesting part. They say, we will share the details once the other bug by Daniel is fixed as well. <laughs> so evidently, Daniel from Star Labs reported at least two vulnerabilities to Apple, and only one of them got patched in this update. So I'm very curious to hear what this other vulnerability was. It sounds like it must be related if they're deciding to withhold information about this until the other one's patched. Okay, and speaking of updates and security updates, we have an article on the Eclectic Light Company website. How can you tell whether your Mac is up to date? And it turns out that if you use content caching, you might miss security updates. Now, just before the show, we were talking about something we'll get into later, and I was looking on my Mac, and I said, well, I don't have that bit of software. And he said, are you up to date? And I said, yes. And I looked, and it said, yes, I'm up to date, 12.4 but not 12.5 because I updated I updated my iPhone and my iPads last week as soon as possible. I just forgot to do my iMac. I backed out of software update and went back in and it showed me the update. So this article is saying that if you use content caching, you might miss the security updates that happen in the background. It's not that you're gonna miss the main updates. Yeah, not necessarily. Yeah, this is something that I think is not fully documented yet, but this is something that Howard Oakley from the Eclectic Light Company, uh, this is his personal blog, he, he's been kind of documenting this for a while and talking about this on Twitter and kind of letting his followers know, hey, if you've got content caching enabled, it seems like there might be a problem here. And so this has actually been ongoing for, for a number of months. Content caching is a feature that's been built into macOS for a while. It sort of replaces a feature that used to be in macOS server and then sort of migrated into the main OS eventually. macOS server now, of course, has been discontinued. But you might have a, an, an iMac or some other device on, on your network, some other Mac that is running as a content caching server, which means that in part, it's going to be caching security updates from Apple. And so the idea behind this is that, you know, if you've got a whole bunch of devices on your network, especially if they're similar devices, maybe the same model, it can be helpful to download once and distribute from that point to all your other devices, especially if you have limited bandwidth or slow bandwidth connection. Yeah, I, I'm going to link in the show notes to an article I wrote, I think, last year, how to use content caching on macOS to save bandwidth. And it is very useful because it's not just updates. Let's say you download a new app from the Mac App Store for your iPhone and you want to get it on your iPad, well, the download is going to be cached, so you can just load it automatically from the cache. However, I've got gigabit fiber. I had it on, I've had it on for years. I just turned it off because it's not really adding much value to me. I'm not saving, the bandwidth doesn't cost me anything. So I wouldn't turn it on if you do have really good bandwidth. If your bandwidth is limited, it is very useful. Right. At this point, it's probably something you can turn off as long as you have reasonably fast internet and you don't have a bandwidth cap. Right. That's another thing. Yes. Even if you have good bandwidth speed, but you have a cap, that means that let's say you have, 
I don't know, four Macs and you're downloading the five gigabyte update four times, content caching will mean that you're only downloading it once. I keep forgetting that you have bandwidth caps in your country. Uh, in some ISPs do, yeah. I don't know that that exists here. It would exist with mobile data, but I've never heard of it happening with broadband. Yeah, in the States, it is more common on mobile carriers to have a, a bandwidth, but I have heard of it happening with broadband companies as well. So there's a story that you're constantly following about your 13-year-old iMac that you are keeping up to date to the almost latest operating system using, what is it, the Open Core Legacy Patcher? And unfortunately, macOS Monterey 12.5 is not yet safe to do this. I don't know if you're going to get another year, if you're going to be able to get to Ventura with this old Mac, but I mean, this is an admirable project that you've been doing. I, I, I'd like to see if you can get this into like the third decade. By the way, it's 15 years old. <laughs> it's the mid 2000s. 15 years old, I mean. see? Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. There's certain models of Macs that if you have them unofficially patched to macOS Monterey using OpenCore Legacy Patcher, there are five particular Mac models that this affects, and it could also apply to other Mac models if you have upgraded your graphics card in it. So if you have upgraded your Mac with OpenCore Legacy Patcher to macOS Monterey to do it unofficially, check out this list. I would read it, but these are really obscure numbers like MacBook Pro 9,1. You have to know what that means. Right. And if you want to know what that is, Mac Tracker is a good app that will give you this information. You can get a version for iOS, iPadOS, and for Mac. And for each device you see, so these are the internal Apple identifiers, I guess, for the different devices. So you'll see which numbers correspond to each device. Right. Now, my iMac is not affected, so I guess I could upgrade to macOS 12.5 if I wanted to on that particular Mac. Now, you said that your iMac is from 2007. Mid-2007, yeah. So the mid-2007 iMac is the 7,1 iMac available in 20 and 24-inch. So you've looked that up and you remember it, so when you see the list, you know. I mean, most people, they're not going to be looking up 10 different Mac models. So find your Mac model, remember that number, and then you'll be able to check it in the future as we move forward. Since we're talking about OpenCore Legacy Patcher, it is worth mentioning that as of right now, it does not yet support macOS Ventura. And they think that it might take several months, maybe six months before it will be able to support Ventura just because of all the different behind the scenes under the hood changes. The, the reason why macOS Monterey 12.5 is not supported for certain Mac models is because Apple actually changed something with the GPU support. So some of their drivers for graphics cards have changed in macOS Monterey for specific Mac models. And there's a lot of pretty big changes to drivers in macOS Ventura. So it's possible that it may not support all the Macs that it's been supporting for all these years. We'll have to wait and see. So my current iMac is 21,1. Okay. That's a, it's a big number compared to yours. <laughs> compared to my 7,1, yeah. Yes, your 7,1. That's 14 iMacs old. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about a hard-coded password thing. And Josh said to me, oh, no, Cisco again? But this wasn't Cisco, was it? It always shocks me that here we are, you know, 2022. How is it possible that anybody is still using hard-coded passwords in any system? 
a hard-coded password basically like like the whole idea behind this like once upon a time maybe it made sense for tech support people to be able to get access to a system that they developed that you can install your own version of it on your own servers for example um, or in other cases like Cisco, maybe they've deployed this hardware, but you know the customer support technicians need to be able to get access to it in order to help you resolve a problem. In this case, this is a software issue. Confluence is software that's used by companies to do things like, it's sort of like um, an internal wiki, I guess, that kind of a thing where you can document things internally for your company so Confluence apparently has a hard-coded password and it's been leaked on Twitter. So this is kind of a problem. Obviously, if you're using Confluence, make sure that it's fully patched. If if you've got it up to date, then this shouldn't be a problem for you. And we've mentioned it in the past that all routers have default passwords, usually admin admin or something like that. And if you haven't changed it, you really should because this allows people to remotely access your network. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we've got more news. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security. Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware. And much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. Okay, we have a story in Engadget, and it makes me think, if you were going to buy a GPS module to track your vehicle or to track someone else's vehicle, would you assume that it couldn't be hacked? I mean, this is something that's using cellular data, and you know that there's going to be vulnerabilities, and you just buy it from some random company on Amazon that you've never heard of. I would just not assume that something like this is going to be secure. In any case, we have an article about a specific Mycodus MV720 tracker that can be hacked, and that means people can track your car. Now, if you think about it, more and more cars have built-in GPS. I know my current car does. And how easy is it going to be for people to track cars if they hack into the, well, the car manufacturer's website where this information is stored or other software that people are using to track their cars? Yeah, this is kind of interesting, and I haven't heard of this company either. M-I-C-O-D-U-S is how it's spelled. I have no idea how that's supposed to be pronounced. Mycodus? Myco, Mycodust? Mycodust. Mycodust. Sounds like micro-dust. Mycodust. <laughs> in, in any case, um, a a cybersecurity firm disclosed that they found six, they, they say, severe vulnerabilities in this particular 
piece of hardware, this GPS tracking hardware, and it's produced by a, a Chinese electronics manufacturer. This Mike Mycotis or however it's pronounced is a is a Chinese company, and they say that these vulnerabilities are not difficult to exploit. This is one of those things that I think is important to bring up from time to time when you know we we kind of think about. Internet of Things technologies. We have all these like interconnected devices, especially usually when you talk about Internet of Things, you're talking about things on your home network. But obviously there are other devices too that, you know, are interconnected and so forth. And you've got to be careful. Uh, you know, if, if it's a company you've never heard of before, I hate to say that you should assume that you can't trust it by default because, of course, then there would be no startup companies, right? They could never really gain a foothold in the market. But at the same time, um, <laughs> you know, if, if it's something like this that's going to be used for tracking purposes or if it's something that you're going to be putting on your home network, you probably generally should be buying from a company whose name you recognize. It's a big brand. and Hopefully, they're going to support it better and have better security than some, you know, random company that you happen to find a cheap product from. The one thing I like in this article, and this is just total serendipity, is the sentence of saying that the most pressing vulnerability involves a hard-coded password that a bad actor could use to send SMS commands <laughs> to the MV720. Because of course, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, so the thing is that cars are more and more connected, and this is going to become a problem. You know, there are cars that you can start up remotely, either with a key fob or from an app, depending on the, the car models. I have a Toyota Yaris Hybrid. The previous one had a key fob that would open the doors and would start the car. You didn't have to put a key in. The current one has a key fob that opens the door, but you still have to put a key in and turn the ignition. So... Depending on the model, you have different capabilities of what you can do remotely. But the more these cars get connected, the more it's going to happen that people are going to either be able to break into your car, steal your car, hack your car, track you, because many cars have GPS built in. So is this like the new Wild West for security? Car security is kind of an important area that I, I think needs to be studied more. It's kind of funny. Before we were recording, I was talking about how one of the first uh, yearly pwn to own winners was Charlie Miller. He started out doing, you know, Apple security research, Macs and iOS. And he eventually shifted to car research. And this was many, many years ago at this point. And I think he was kind of ahead of the game. This is kind of like a, a largely unexplored field. And as there are more and more uh, sort of interconnected things. There's all all sorts of like technology, all these gadgets and things that are built into cars these days. And it's something that I think needs more researchers looking more closely at this. As I was telling you before we started recording, I don't care if my car gets stolen, it's insured, right? <laughs> my insurance will cover it. However, what could happen is if a particular model gets hacked and get stolen a lot more, then either insurance premiums will go up or you won't be able to get that car insured. Yeah. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, there was an episode of the Security Now podcast where they the the featured story in this was, in, the, in fact, the episode title is The Rolling Pone. <laughs> and it's all about this 
Honda vulnerability that's existed for more than a decade now. Um, they've verified that they were able to exploit this vulnerability on Hondas as far back as 2012 and as recently as several models that are 2022 models. And it allows an attacker to potentially break into your car. They can steal your car using this vulnerability. And Honda's response was kind of unfortunate. They, first of all, they didn't really have any good reporting mechanism for security vulnerabilities. And so they contacted customer support and nothing ever really came of it. So they released information publicly. And then Honda responded by basically saying, yeah, well, you'd have to be a sophisticated attacker with specialized knowledge and equipment in order to do this. And it's like, well, yeah, isn't that what a hacker is? That's the very definition of a hacker that you'll find in a dictionary. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and presumably it's not just Honda. There are probably other car manufacturers that have very similar vulnerabilities. It just happens to be that this researcher was checking out Hondas in particular. So, this is a problem. Um, <laughs> this is not something that car manufacturers should not care about. Obviously, this this can affect uh, insurance, like like you talked about. I mean, if somebody wants, steals a, a number of these cars, now that they know that this is a, a problem on a lot of Honda models, you could end up seeing a lot more Hondas being stolen because now the information's out there on how to do this. Yeah, every any hacker is going to find out how to do this. It's worth noting that we were talking about your 15-year-old iMac before, like it's exceptional. And you were talking about Hondas going back to 2012, which isn't exceptional. People keep cars 10, 15 years, unlike computers. Yet what's happening is the computing power in cars is not able to really keep up over time. Like who knows how much RAM there is in that 2012 Honda who knows if the onboard system can be upgraded easily? You know, today's cars, they're all upgradable, but there is a period where it might not have been that simple. Okay, so we have an interesting story about Zoom bringing end-to-end -end encryption to its phone service. And before we started recording, you were giving us an explanation of what end-to-end -end encryption means. And I find this really interesting to think about that it doesn't necessarily mean that all things are good. Yeah. So first of all, I'll say that this is a good thing. Like anytime that a company is adding into an encryption to a product that doesn't have it, I, I would say generally that's a good thing for users, right? So I don't want to minimize that. So Zoom, good job. Thank you for adding into an encryption to your cloud phone service. Nice job. However, um, it is important to understand what exactly end-to-end -end encryption means. Generally speaking, when, when people say end-to-end encryption, what, what people think about is that that means that there's only two parties that can have access to that communication, right? Like is two tin cans and one string. Exactly, yeah, two tin cans and one string. However, there is a possibility that there could be another string maybe attached to that string and there's another can that somebody else can listen in on. That's what into an encryption can mean. Most of the time companies sort of imply that nobody else can possibly get your data, anything that's transmitted over this into an encryption. But the reality is that the way into an encryption, generally speaking, works is it's using 
public key cryptography, meaning that there is a private key that is used to decrypt data and there's a public key that's used to encrypt data. With public key cryptography, anyone who's ever used PGP that a long time ago, that was kind of like a popular method of like encrypting messages that you could send over email or chat platforms or whatever. If you've ever used something like this where you're managing your own keys, you know that it's possible to actually add an additional party. And so you can have multiple people who can decrypt that message, even though it's only being encrypted once. So when we think of end-to-end -end encryption, we think of just two ends. And what you're saying is there can be more ends. That sounds like a kind of quantum physics thing, right? <laughs> it's, it's not that complicated. So basically the way that it works is that if you have multiple public keys of, uh, of the entities that you want to send to, then you can encrypt once and have that data available to be decrypted by multiple parties. Well, here's, here's an even better metaphor. Our producer, Doug Adams, is on this call, and sometimes we're sending messages to each other via Apple's iMessages, and it's a group of three people, but all of the ends are encrypted, right? Mm -hmm. So there's three ends, and they're all encrypted from one end to the other ends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so here's the thing that there can be, especially in systems where the keys are managed by another party. In the case of iCloud, iMessage, Apple is managing all those keys for you. You know the password for your Apple ID account, but there's no reason that Apple can't add another recipient uh, or another entity that can decrypt those messages. So if Apple were asked by law enforcement to, you know, be able to see any future iMessages between a couple of uh, individuals, for example, or, or in a group, Apple could add another recipient that can possibly decrypt those messages. So same thing with Zoom, same thing with any other into an encryption service where the company running that service is managing the keys. Early this month, Motherboard actually reported that the FBI has been doing this to wiretap the world for a long time already. So this technology isn't exactly, you know, new. It's not unexplored. It reportedly has actually been done in the wild for some time. Okay, Drobo is a commonly used device for storage. It is a kind of a RAID device. The basic device has five slots. You put five drives in. It sets up a really secure RAID array. If a drive goes bad, it warns you. You pop it out. You put a new one. Really good for photographers who need a lot of storage. They're going bankrupt. And this is actually causing a bit of consternation in the photography world, especially professional photographers who have hundreds of thousands of photos, because... Drobo simplified this kind of storage, which could either be connected or on a network, making it very easy to just create a volume without having to deal with a NAS. So NAS, a network-attached storage device, there are many companies. They come in all sizes. They're used by enterprises and by individuals. I have a small one. They're a lot more work because they have an operating system. Drobo had an app that you used to configure, and then you have a volume and you put your files there. So if you do own a Drobo device, you may want to think about the future because chapter 11 doesn't mean that the company's going out of business, but 
you know, it's hard to come back, I think, after that. It at least means that they're restructuring and th that they are having financial difficulty, right? If they continue as they were, then, you know, they would completely go out of business. So chapter 11 is sort of a way of protecting themselves from that and allowing themselves to have an opportunity to, to restructure and hopefully come back from it. Drobo advertised on a lot of podcasts, what, maybe a decade ago? Even less than that. They were very aggressive. Yeah. And again, particularly in the photography space. Right, right. A lot of people have Drobos. Again, it does not mean that they're completely going away, but it is something to be aware of if you're considering buying one of these storage devices. It's something you're going to have to consider. Do you own an ass? Um, actually, I don't. Uh, I, I do have a computer that I use with an external hard drive that I kind of have just set up on my network as uh, kind of network attached storage, I guess, yeah, but I yeah. don't have a device that's like plugged into my network that does all the ma management of the storage by itself. Yeah. I, I have a Synology two disc NAS that I use for my Plex video library for all my videos that I've ripped and to put some backups on. It's very good to have a device like that if you have a lot of data. Very good to use for backups. All right, that's enough for this week. We'll be back next week with episode number 251. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.